the Farm Advisory Service podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government. Welcome to today's Farm Advisory Service podcast. Over the month of November, we have hosted a series of podcasts and webinars focusing on fodder beet for livestock. Today is the final segment of this series where we will focus on animal health. I'm Kirsten Williams, a beef and sheep consultant with SEC Consulting. And over this series, we've spoken about how essential timed and planned transition of animals, especially cattle, onto fodder beet is. This is to ensure both the rumen bugs adjust to the high sugar diet and that all metabolic processes and systems adapt. Today, we are again joined by Dr. Jim Gibbs, who is joining us virtually from New Zealand. As well as being a fodder beet specialist, Jim is also a vet and a ruminant nutritionist. Over the last 12 years, he has designed fodder beet grazing systems to prevent health issues such as acidosis, clostridial diseases and deficiencies to livestock grazing fodder beet. He has a wealth of both experience and a vast amount of knowledge on fodder beet in both New Zealand and the UK. Jim, welcome back for the final podcast of the series. Oh, thank you very much, Kirsten, and uh, greetings to the Scottish audience. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm really looking forward to this, the last of the uh, webinar podcasts. So we have discussed transition between the webinar series and earlier podcasts to prevent acidosis and animals that are grazing fodder beet. But can you explain to us why acidosis can be a problem for these animals? Yes, okay. Um, the, the first thing to remember as a background to this, to understanding why beet is particularly affected by acidosis and especially cattle, is that the way that uh, ruminants transfer energy from their diet to their body is very different to us as monogastrics. Uh, what we do is we simply take this material in, particularly the energy-rich carbohydrates, cut them up into their very simple basics and absorb them and use them directly. But the way that ruminants use them is very different. And they change that carbohydrate, which is typically about two-thirds of a ruminant's diet, into uh, an energy-rich acid, an organic acid, and then they absorb and use that acid. So one simple way of putting this is that in the ruminant system, if we're feeding them better and we're wanting them to produce more and we're giving them, therefore, more energy in their diet, then we're automatically producing more acids. So that large first stomach, the rumen, uh, it, it will always be that that room in the first of their stomachs will always be producing this acid. And if that acid uh, builds up to an excess in that first stomach, then there's a series of problems. So how the ruminants would ordinarily control that excess is that they would remove those acids that are being um, produced there. Now, in some of the, that removal can, is typically through the rumen wall or further material being pushed further down the gastrointestinal tract and to a lesser extent some of the rumen microbes that are actually doing this work and transforming these products will use some of them themselves. But a, a very uh, important component of this is that the animals themselves learn the rate that they can put material into the rumen. So if you like, they learn how fast they can shovel coal into the uh, boiler before they melt it down. 
Now, one of the difficulties and where ruminacidosis becomes a problem is if you have a lot of very high uh, fermentability carbohydrates, so uh, carbohydrates like sugars and starches that are rapidly available and very easily available to the rumen bugs, then the, the, uh, the rate of production of these oenic acids can be very high. And if there's a few things that tip over during that process, then the removal of those organic acids uh, falls apart. And at that point, you get excess acid in the rumen, and we know that as rumen acidosis. It has a series of effects, um, some uh, at the milder level initially, and then as it gets more severe, um, a series of effects in the animal beyond the rumen. So the first thing that happens is that the rumen bugs themselves can be damaged by this, and then they don't work. The next thing is that the rumen itself, the physical structure of the rumen itself can be damaged. The lining can be damaged. We call that in pharma talk colloquially being burnt. And then finally beyond that in severe cases, the animals are affected. This, these materials are moved beyond the rumen into the uh, animal system and they'll be seriously affected. Now the reason why fodder beet in particular is a genuine acidosis uh, risk if it's not managed sensibly is that it has a very high content of very rapidly available sugar. About 50% of the dry matter of bulb uh, by weight can be sucrose, just plain sucrose. And on top of that, it's a very low dry matter forage. So there's a lot of water, there's a very fast rumen, there's a very fast rumen passage rate. And both of those things uh, predispose this diet to causing acidosis, particularly in cattle. And Jim, when are animals most likely to actually be affected by acidosis when they're grazing beet crops? Now, now that's an interesting question because cattle in particular um, show um, a, a very strict calendar of effects when they begin grazing beet crops. Even though we've just said that there's a lot of sugar and a lot of water uh, in this crop, it's quite rare to see acidosis in the first few days on the crop. Um, in past webinars and podcasts, we've spent some time, uh, which we could refer listeners to to get more information on this, we spent some time explaining that uh, one of the um, genuine changes that's taking place through transition when, when the cattle are being adapted to this crop is that they're learning how to eat it. And even if they've been on that crop the year before, there's still a process of about seven days when they get their head around uh, mouthing bulbs again and uh, the way that they would eat those bulbs by chipping them away with their incisors, which takes a little bit for them to switch onto. So for a few reasons, they won't normally get to have strong intakes of beet until they've been on the crop again about a week. So in livestock that um, are most at risk for acidosis, and that would typically be uh, dry dairy cows that are put on it, you will normally see uh, severe acidosis in genuine mismanagement in that bracket between day seven to 10. Um, it's very consistent. And given that these animals often go onto the crop on the same day, you can almost set your watch by it in cases where it's been mismanaged. It's very rare to see it in the early days. And then once those animals have been transitioned onto unrestricted beet intakes, so that process takes about 14 days or so, then regardless of what you do, regardless of how much beet you allocate to them or how much supplement you do or don't give to them, it's not possible to induce acidosis in them anymore. If you like, they've learnt their rate of intake at that point and they remember that for the season. So very definitely that period, the risk period, the so-called death zone, is seven to ten days after cattle have been on the crop. 
And what kind of signs should people be looking for for acidosis? So there's, um, acidosis will present itself in uh, either a, a mild clinical form or a completely subclinical form on occasion, which you only see later on by lower production, particularly lower live weight gain in beef animals, up to a very severe clinical form where um, the animals are, are recumbent, so they're down and they're on the ground. So in, in the severe case, what you see with these animals is typically uh, they would present in the morning the next morning, the farmer would come along to them and there would be, in cases of uh, uh, severe mismanagement of the beet crop, there'd be 5% of the herd will be on the ground and they would almost always be on their chest. They'll uh, be extremely dehydrated even at that early point and they look pretty sore and sorry for themselves and they're not able to get up. One of the very early uh, physical effects of acidosis on the rumen is that it causes complete rumen stasis. So the rumen can't move anymore after that. And within uh, a very short period, what that induces is a calcium deficiency. So even in dry stock, you've got a functional milk fever. It doesn't happen, you know, this, this can be steers that are on it that are showing the sign. So those animals aren't capable of getting up. They're, they're down on the ground. They look pretty sorry for themselves and they're not capable of getting up. However, if you look carefully at those groups, there'll be another 5 or 10% of that same mob that are on there that have all had the same uh, exposure to too much beet uh, too early. And if you look carefully at them, what you see with them is that they'll show this sort of uh, wobbly ataxia. So if you watch them walk, they'll shake a little bit and they'll uh, sort of have, appear to be drunk and have this sort of uh, ataxia. In New Zealand farmer parlance, uh, this is called wobbling the cattle. And so these wobbly cattle are a sign of uh, a milder acidosis. Now they're wobbly because that calcium is required for normal muscle function and they're very low on calcium. So you see this quite clearly with them. The, the other signs of um, slightly milder acidosis that uh, you can see in other uh, animals in that mob when there's been a severe acidosis incidence is they'll be very slow to come forward to either the supplement or the crop in the morning when the feed is being offered again. So in, the interesting component of that is even in uh, cases where these animals have been terribly mismanaged, so they're at the peak risk zone, they're the peak risk livestock class, and they're all put on there, you, you never see more, more than about 10 or 15% of the group that are affected. And it's important to remember that 80, 85% or so of the entire mob will be as uh, happy as the day they were born. Um, acidosis doesn't happen to all the animals in a group. And you, the ones that you can see, the ones that are affected by them, are the ones that you have to concern yourself with. The other animals in that group are of no concern, and they typically will have regulated their intake very differently, and they're not an issue, and you don't have to change anything around them. In um, beef animals, the, the signs of... Um, milder acidosis and it is typically in beef animals because they're not as uh, at risk of genuine clinical acidosis as the dairy cows themselves are um, often no signs will be seen at all in uh, strong mismanagement you can produce uh, wobbly cattle quite rare to have cattle that are down in beef units you, you can get them but you've got to work quite hard to do so it's it's not very common What's much more common as a sign of acidosis in beef uh, occurs a lot later on, and that is that you see uh, a very poor live weight gain in a significant group uh, within the mob. 
So what acidosis, mild acidosis, does induce in cattle is a feed aversion. So in other words, they've learned not to eat beet. So they've eaten too much of it. They've had a mild dose of rumen acidosis, which has burnt them. And they learn very quickly not to do that again. And you don't get them back for that season. So what they do after that is even if you've got them locked on the crop and they eat as much uh, supplement as they can and they eat enough leaf and enough bulb to stay alive, but they don't usually put on any weight and therefore they're not profitable for the farmer to have. So mild acidosis in beet, which will always happen at transition, always happen at transition, will show itself in um, beef systems a lot later on in poor live weight gains and poor production. You occasionally see in uh, some of these animals that the works after, um, in, in cases, again, where there's been mismanagement, uh, liver abscesses and some rumen scarring, but it's not very common in beef animals. With a very, very large number of animals having gone through uh, this system in New Zealand now over more than a decade, uh, and we've followed them through to the works, and it's really relatively rare. And for animals that are affected, Jim, how are you treating them over in New Zealand? So the traditional treatment for rumen acidosis, and by its very name, um, suggests that there's um, you know, an excess of acid in the rumen and therefore the rumen pH is low. And that's true, the rumen pH in these um, severely affected animals will be somewhere in that bracket from about 4.7 up to about 4.9 or so. The traditional treatment for uh, rumen acidosis was developed uh, principally from the feedlots in uh, North America, where they're starch-based diets, which produce a very severe uh, rumen acidosis and very severe cases of um, starch-induced acidosis are pretty refractory to most treatment. So what, and a lot of that treatment was inherited by um, uh, by the veterinary practice in New Zealand particularly. And typically what would happen in most rumen acidosis cases is there would be some attempt to correct rumen pH. So what would happen is animals would be drenched. They might be drenched with um, calcium carbonate. They might be drenched with magnesium oxide, um, cause mag, a very common uh, material on farm, particularly on dairy farms, or they might be drenched with sodium bicarbonate. And the concept behind all of these would be that that material would get into the rumen and would raise the rumen pH. Um, it's proved over the last six or seven years in New Zealand to be a very ineffective treatment for uh, acidosis cases, severe acidosis cases in particular, that have arisen as a result of mismanagement of um, beet allocation in transition. And some recent work that we've done over the last several years has demonstrated that when you do give them those rumen drenches, the historic sodium bicarbonate, and particularly magnesium oxide drenches, it has a relatively minor effect on rumen pH. So it isn't very effective in increasing rumen pH. But the much more important issue with it is, is that uh, within six or 12 hours or so of the initial insult to the rumen, there's a whole lot of other things that take over. And so rumen pH in some ways almost becomes secondary. And of course, the rumen's not moving and there's nothing coming out of the rumen. There's nothing flowing through it. So it's effectively like a mailbag that's sitting there at that time. And so putting those drenches in was changing the concentration of the rumen for the worse, having a very adverse effect on them. So the, the most effective treatment today for uh, acidosis affected animals on beet crops is simply calcium administered under under the skin. So these animals that are down, what happened is they get two bags of calcium, just a standard milk fever um, treatment, 
two bags of calcium under the skin. They're often calcium is not particularly low, so it's not very common to have it put in the vein. It's calcium that's just put in under the skin. About half of them will get up almost immediately. So of the 5% that are down on the ground, about half of them will get up almost immediately. And then of the other half, some will get up within a couple of hours and there'll be a proportion of them that won't get up at all. As a general rule of thumb, if they're not up within eight hours of calcium treatment, they're never going to get up. And um, uh, unfortunately, the, the large number of animals that are on beat and the uh, inexperience of certain new operators were the, when they're going on to beat has given us some um, pretty good numbers looking at uh, treatment of acidosis affected animals. So we've got a pretty good idea these days of what works and what doesn't. Room and drenches as a rule are counterproductive and uh, calcium under the skin to the severe cases is the, the best option. For those wobbly animals that are walking around, um, we don't move them at all. We don't do anything with them. They're, as long as they're walking after 24 hours, the number of them that would go on to have significant illness or death is fantastically low. They're, um, they're normally a very good prognosis at that point. Um, the other thing to point out is that um, rumen acidosis on big crops is always a mismanagement and an overallocation. So if you're seeing these animals are defected, something's gone wrong, and the real treatment is to make sure that it doesn't go wrong again tomorrow. And the, the typical uh, operating response to an acidosis incident on farm is to set the allocation back to 75% of whatever it was yesterday. So regardless of where it was, to set it back to 75% to keep it there for a couple of days, to put an extra kilo or so of supplement into the system for a few days and then get back on track with transition to complete it. And there's some more information about transition and allocation in previous podcasts that would be well worth people listening to on acidosis. Moving on to a different disorder, it's widely documented that all classes of stock that graze beet are susceptible to clostridial diseases. Why is this, Jim, and why does it happen? Well, that's very true, um, Kirsten. And again, um, in the same way that different livestock classes have a different susceptibility to rumen acidosis in transition, um, different livestock classes have a different susceptibility to clostridial disease. So the clostridial disease that occurs in beet grazing systems is uh, Clostridium perfringens type D. And many of the farming audience would know this as pulpy kidney in lamb. And what happens in this disease is that there's an overgrowth of this particular species, this particular clostridial species, uh, typically in the, the first part of the small intestine. And it then produces a toxin, which is disseminated throughout the body and affects various tissues. Uh, the, the usual clinical sign of Clostridium perfringens is just sudden death. So it's extremely rare, particularly in beet grazing systems, it's extremely rare to ever see a sick animal. You normally just see them and they're dead. And they're usually the better animals. And the reason why they're often the better animals is that the um, framework behind Clostridium perfringens type D uh, affecting these cattle is that that particular bacteria proliferates and overgrows if you get a lot of sugar into the small intestine. Now, beet clearly has a lot of sugar, 50% in many cases of the bowl by dry matter, and it has a lot of water, very fast stream and passage rate, as we mentioned before. So when these animals achieve high or maximum intakes, and that uh, takes about three or four weeks from the time they're first put onto the crop, so it's beyond transition, then what begins to happen is that uh, more and more of the sugar is washed out of the rumen rather than having been digested in the rumen, which carbohydrates often are, 
this material is washed out of the rumen with these very high water flows and they're into the washed into the small intestine. And Clostridium perfringens overgrowth can happen in these cases. Um, there's one other point that's uh, relative, relatively important in this, and, and that is that Clostridium perfringens spores can uh, stay in the soil. So in, uh, for various reasons, that uh, these can be passed in the faeces and then they'll stay in the soil. And soil intakes on beet grazing systems are relatively high. That's not a problem. I think we come to that later. But what can happen in these cases is that you've got more spores being washed into the small intestine anyway, and then you've got more sugar, which tends to activate them. So as a consequence, if these animals are not uh, adequately vaccinated before they go onto the system, once they achieve maximum intakes, and that in cattle will typically be three or four weeks when you begin to see this, then what you see is you see uh, odd, occasional and sporadic sudden death. Uh, important to note that um, there are some other clostridial species that are involved in sudden death and um, there's been quite some work in New Zealand over some years now looking at this. So Clostridium perfringens type D is uh, one of the clostridial diseases that is uh, covered in the older standard five-in-one vaccinations. You don't need the uh, more contemporary and sophisticated clostridial uh, vaccination programs to cover for this particular uh, animal health issue on beet grazing systems. It's, it's adequately covered by being vaccinated. However, the younger animals and cattle, particularly the weaners and the replacement dairy heifers, and in, uh, in sheep, that is particularly the hoggets and uh, especially the lambs, they are very susceptible to this. And in the lambs and hoggets in particular, they uh, will normally start uh, having um, affected animals almost immediately that they arrive on the crop. They're not like cattle where they have to uh, wait for a while to achieve a very high intakes before you start seeing this disease. You see them almost immediately for them being put on the crop. And if they haven't been vaccinated, uh, even as adults, so stage use, for example, if they haven't had their full vaccine or a uh, pre-crop vaccine booster, then the losses can be quite strong. So it's very important to make sure that they're vaccinated against this. Okay. And you spoke there about high soil intake. And sometimes you hear people saying, does, questioning, I suppose, if that causes problems or not, apart from your clostridial diseases. Have you seen any problems with soil intake at all? Um, the, the, the most honest answer about that is in, in almost all cases, it plays no role at all. Um, but you're, you're correct that we uh, have heard lots in, in New Zealand over many years about um, the various effects that soil is supposed to have had. And it was a focus of particular research in the early days, the early part of this crop. What we were doing in those cases was we were measuring what soil intake was by looking at the soil that was passed in the faeces and by using rumen fistulated animals where we could empty the rumen and uh, actually weigh the soil that was in the rumen in, for various winter crops. So for example, beet and kale and um, for that matter, uh, ryegrass as well. The, the way that soil is normally um, spoken of as a problem, uh, there, well, there was a few of these, but, but the two probably most common ways are that either it fills up in somewhere in the gastrointestinal tract. So you get either rumen impaction by soil, which is just com completely false. Um, or that, that soil uh, dragging through the gut abrades different parts of the gut. Sometimes it's spoken of abrading the rumen, sometimes abrading the intestines, etc., and then either causes uh, injury to it or 
predisposes these animals to other diseases. And in no case is any of that true. The, the issue that higher soil intake can have where there are, um, there are some things to think through on is that, as we said before, it is true that there's clostridial spores in soil and in all winter crops, the soil intake is relatively high, a lot higher than uh, people often uh, acknowledge. So in, in beet particularly though, the soil intake, because their general intake is a lot higher, their soil intake is also higher. And in those cases, um, of course, the clostridial diseases, as we've spoken about, become an issue. And in very rare cases, listeria. Um, listeria is a, a relatively common disease in New Zealand livestock, but a very, very rare disease in bottom-beat grazing systems with any livestock that are on it, uh, be they uh, cattle or sheep. So it's, to, to answer your question around soil, as a general rule, it plays no uh, definite uh, issue at all in animal health. Another one that's spoken commonly about is the effect of soil and soil intakes on teeth. So you hear things like it sandpapers the teeth away or it has various effects in teeth falling out and they're all a complete myth. But um, we are very careful with trace element status on uh, winter grazing meat in particular. Um, for the younger animals and the finishing animals, we want to achieve maximum production. So we're quite careful that they're copper, selenium, cobalt, iodine, zinc, etc. that those requirements are being met. Um, in some cases, uh, copper can be affected by higher soil intakes if the soil happens to have a lot of molybdenum in it. Molybdenum forms with copper and sulphur in the room and an insoluble complex that can tie copper up. And on occasion, very high iron intakes as well can play a minor role in reducing copper absorption. So um, the general answer is soil plays very little, if any, role at all. But there are a few cases where we're more careful with it. Okay, so quite often people ask about deficiencies of phosphorus as well. And I guess this is more so in crops where the leaves have died back or where they're poor and so the, the mineral level would be low. What does this deficiency look like and how can it be prevented? So phosphorus deficiency on um, uh, grazing beet crops where that's a primary component of their diet and there's only 10% or so of any other uh, feed input in that diet uh, can occasionally be an issue. Uh, almost always in very high producing dairy cows where the supplement input is something that isn't green. So for example, cereal straw or poor quality hay. And the rationale for that is that the, um, the, the general accepted uh, dry cow level of phosphorus in the diet is about 0.24% of the total dry matter. And um, bulb crops, and beets one of them of course, bulb crops by their very nature, they don't hold a lot of calcium, they don't hold a lot of uh, phosphorus, and they typically don't hold a lot of non-protein nitrogen in that bulb. That's just a, a component of the plant physiology. Now beet in particular will hold relatively little calcium in the bulb and relatively, relatively little phosphorus in the bulb, but in the leaf, it can hold quite high levels of calcium and reasonable levels of phosphorus. So in past webinars and podcasts, we've spoken quite carefully about the role that good agronomy in, in a very different way to traditional sugar beet agronomy, good agronomy for fodder beet grazing systems, particularly those that are going to use that uh, crop across the winter, will hold good leaf into the cold season. And that becomes very important in certain regions where phosphorus is lower in the soil 
and for some other reasons where phosphorus uptake into plants is relatively lower. So in various regions around the world, what this can mean is instead of uh, having a phosphorus level in the bulb of about adequacy, so above 0.2% of the dry matter, the phosphorus level in the bulb can be relatively low. By low, we mean a quarter of that. Now, if there's no leaf in those systems, if they're agronomically challenged crops or they've been uh, mismanaged and the leaf has disappeared in autumn or they don't have good strong leaf or they have a very low proportion of leaf, then um, you can run into some issues with phosphorus deficiency. Now, phosphorus deficiency um, clinically is only really seen after the winter period in relatively high producing dairy cows. And this is where um, phosphorus was first uh, alerted as an issue in New Zealand. What um, I saw in the very earliest days were um, uh, various manifestations in dairy herds that were quite distinctive to, to phosphorus. What happens in these cases is first and foremost, you get a higher overall incidence after calving of milk fever. So by that, we mean in these cases where this is a significant problem, there may be 10% or so of the herd that will uh, show signs of milk fever. However, in and amongst those um, animals that are down with milk fever, what you see are these um, animals that are very specific to phosphorus deficiency. And they're commonly called in uh, pharma uh, talk, they're called creeper cows. So these animals will be down on their chest, they can't get up. And unlike normal milk fever cows, they don't sink very quickly um, uh, away from consciousness. So they're still quite bright. They can shake their look and look at you. They can shake your head at you. They're quite hard to uh, administer calcium to, for example, but they just physically can't get up. And they respond relatively poorly to calcium. Um, they'll, 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 move, they'll hop up for a short while, then they'll go back down again. And this will be repeated and repeated. And often the prognosis for these in the early days of leaf before phosphorus was understood, um, the prognosis for these was very poor. If you have those um, specific creeper cows in uh, in uh, early in early carbon cases in dairy systems, it's almost certainly been low phosphorus in that winter feeding on beet crops. Now, it was a relatively easy thing for us to uh, first to diagnose and work out, and then to do something about. There's some uh, very inexpensive and easily used uh, phosphorus supplements. By far, the most common one is one called DCP or dicalcium phosphate. It's a fertilizer and uh, it's administered across sprinkled simply very uh, fine powder prill and it's administered across the supplement that's fed with the beet at about 50 grams uh, per cow per day at that level it's providing about nine grams of elemental phosphorus to the animals and that's enough to com completely uh, mitigate any of the phosphorus deficiency that's seen uh, very commonly used in the large systems in new zealand in beef systems, um, phosphorus deficiency almost never shows in a similar way. In beef systems, phosphorus deficiency will um, almost always show itself again in poor production, relatively low intakes. So in those systems where a lot poor live weight gains through the season have been determined, then often we would go and work out what the actual intakes of those animals are. And in most cases, their intake will be uh, quite low. They can be down to about two thirds of what they should be. But it's much rarer and the phosphorus requirements in beef are lower than they are in uh, the dry cow, particularly the gestating dry cow. So it's relatively rare to see those strong effects and it's not very common to mitigate it or to supplement with phosphorus anywhere in the world where they're on beef. By far and away, the approach that's taken to mitigating phosphorus is um, different agronomy. 
if more nitrogen is put on and later nitrogen is, is put on, then the proportion of that total plant that's in good green leaf is much higher. So you can move that from, for example, 12% up to 25 or 30%. And there's a lot more phosphorus when there's more nitrogen held in the bulb and in the leaf, there's a lot more phosphorus held in as well. So a stronger way to mitigate them is by a different agronomy of the crop. And you spoke there about agronomically challenged crops. What other issues come of, of these crops for the poor leaf, bearing in mind that the leaf holds the protein and the minerals? Um, if, there was, if it was one of the major take-home lessons of uh, beet grazing over the last 13 or so years uh, that I've been involved with this, right from the very initiation of it, and particularly when I developed the beef grazing systems, it would be that there is no replacement for the leaf in a beet grazing system. I think farmers need to be aware of that. There, simply, there is no replacement for the leaf in that system. Um, uh, people who are inexperienced with the crop often think that if they've got poor leaf, that they're able to put other green supplements into the system and get similar production out of them. And it's just simply not true. Any of the other green supplements that go in, no matter how good a quality they are, even grass for that matter, good quality pasture, will always have a much higher um, fibre content than the leaf does. And um, one of the peculiarities of beet intakes is that it's quite sensitive to fibre intake. So as a general rule, um, the, the total intake will be suppressed, therefore the production will be suppressed. But there's some very specific uh, animal health issues that come along with having good green leaf as well. And one of them is that the total crude protein of the diet depends in in all the important areas on the proportion of leaf that that crop holds. So uh, if you know, that leaf, for example, in agronomically challenged crops, that, that, that leaf has been reduced down to 12% or so, as a general rule of thumb, the agronomy that's produced very little leaf will have been relatively low nitrogen agronomy. And what that will also mean is that the proportion of uh, well, the concentration of nitrogen in the bulb, so the crude protein content of the bulb, will also be low. So to give um, people a frame of reference for that, it's uh, routine to have that nitrogen in the bulb move from less than 1%, so that's a crude protein somewhere around about 6% or so, up to 10 or 11%. So there can be a, the, the agronomy that you provide that crop with can change the crude protein of that crop a lot because it'll change the nitrogen in the bulb, it'll change the nitrogen in the leaf, and it'll change the proportion of the leaf. So uh, that will also, of course, impact on the phosphorus nutrition, which we've spoken about just before. There's two other things to think about, though, that green leaf provide. Um, beet is relatively low, as a general rule of thumb, relatively low in selenium. It's not a strong selenium uh, crop, and we routinely supplement um, animals that are on beet for the winter, particularly with selenium. However, the selenium works in conjunction with vitamin E um, in the animal. And uh, if you don't have a lot of green material, so if you don't have a lot of uh, green leaf and there's not some good quality green supplement going in, then one of the problems that we've seen is uh, vitamin E deficiencies. And again, these would almost always um, first show themselves in uh, gestating dairy cows after calving. And the principal issue that you see in that case is you see uh, a, a very strong increase in the incidence of retained uh, fetal membranes.
and it can be quickly and easily treated by um, uh, administering vitamin E to them and, and the problem solved until the next season. But that green leaf again is the solution to that. However, the other one that you see in situations where there's no green supplement going in and there's no leaf is that you can also have calcium issues and that's really around the provision of vitamin D. So often these systems are being used in winter where there's low light, particularly at the strong latitudes that Scotland has. <clears throat> that uh, the, the incidence of the light at that latitude is um, uh, far steeper as well. So potentially without good green leaf, you can run into some issues with vitamin E in the animal as well. So there's a few things that poor leaf can do. And going back to what we said before, agronomy always pays for itself. And uh, specific fodder beet agronomy for grazing systems is very different from sugar beet agronomy. One of the very strong lessons in New Zealand in recent years. Okay. And do fodder beet leaves, have they got the potential to cause oxalate poisoning? Yeah, that's an interesting one. The, the, the answer, the emphatic answer to that is absolutely not under any circumstances. But it's a it's a really good question because um, the plant family that uh, beet belongs to um, is well known for having uh, oxalic acid or these oxalates in the plant tissue and particularly in the leaf. And for decades, many decades, um, the the use of fodder beet as a grazing crop was um, was not done on the basis that the uh, oxalate content of the leaf was a genuine problem and it was, if you like, a toxic dose to ruminants that were grazing it. And therefore, they could only have it as a relatively small proportion of the total diet. And you still hear that occasionally. It's a European idea particularly. And you still hear that occasionally uh, with people who are being exposed to beet grazing systems for the first time. In the earliest years in New Zealand, it was one of the very first research projects that I undertook in beet grazing system. And what we looked at was we were looking at the leaf and bulb content in mature crops, the, the oxalate content, developed a methodology for doing so and for assessing that in the laboratory. And we demonstrated in the first year that the oxalate concentration was a derisory concentration that was hardly worth even looking at it. So in subsequent years, we would sample the crop every month right through the growing season. What we demonstrated really strongly there was the only time the oxalate level was um, even appreciable was, was when the crop was so small that nobody would graze it anyway. So it's, um, it's a complete myth, to put it plainly. The reason, though, as a myth that it got some currency in the early days is that the effect of oxalate is to tie up calcium pretty much on a one-to-one -one basis and in the rumen. So very strong oxalate toxicities, and you do see them in some plants that have um, often rangeland plants too, in uh, the sort of subtropic zones. There's a number of these species that have extremely high oxalate concentrations in them. And what you see in um, some of the toxicities with this is that they'll induce, again, a milk fever. Now, going back to what we spoke about before, it wasn't well understood when I began with these grazing systems that the issue, that the, the only real animal health issue that you have was um, rumen acidosis as a consequence of poor transition. And what had happened in the early days was that the low calcium, the low blood calcium that you see with animals with mild rumen acidosis as a consequence of um, poor transition to the crop was mistaken to, to be a low blood calcium as a consequence of having oxalate in the leaf. So that's where the myth really began. 
Um, nope, it doesn't play any role at all. Complete myth. Okay, interesting. And people who have grazed animals on veg waste, say like potatoes, they have often had issues with animals choking on crops. Would that be an issue at all with fodder beet? Have you seen that at all in New Zealand? Um, again, the short answer is no, it's not an issue. Um, you do occasionally see choke with uh, these animals and there's quite specific manifestations of that. Um, in the beef systems particularly, uh, we were in the really lucky opportunity in the early days to work with the larger farm groups where we were setting these systems up and developing them and keep account on the number of animals that were grazed over the years and the number that uh, succumbed to choke and the number that that choke could be cleared from and the number that couldn't be and then resulted in the death of that animal. And in short, it's less than one in a thousand. Um, on top of that, it's got quite a specific manifestation. You almost never see it in well-grown crops. The only time that you do see it is if you've got um, spectacularly mismanaged crops where the bulb size is very low. So either the plant number is very high and the agronomy has been poor or it's been a really water challenged or often nutrient challenged crop where you've got very small bulb sizes. And the reason that that becomes an issue and why choke is so much more common in big grazing in those crops is that the way that um, cattle in particular, you never see it in sheep, you just never see it at all in sheep. But the way that cattle eat um, uh, beet is quite distinctive. They preferentially knock the bulb over and then they eat from the middle first. And when they've finished eating the middle, they then eat the bottom of the bulb and then they'll go back and they'll eat from the middle right up to the crown and then they'll leave the crown. And that crown will be left behind. So if you go in, in uh, well-managed operations after it, you look down and you see lots of crowns on the ground for two or three days behind them. Those animals then go back at different times of the day. And it's, so it's a very different eating pattern. And then they eat the crowns. And the way that they eat the crowns is different again. With the beet bulbs, they chip it all away with their incisors. But when they eat the crowns, they throw them up and they eat them with their uh, molars. And they crunch them up with their molars. So their head's held high instead of how they would normally eat beet on the ground. And what you see with these choke cases is it is exclusively these crowns. So if they're very small undergrown crops, the crowns are quite uh, tiny. They can be about one, one and a half inch diameter. And what happens in those cases is that they don't uh, chew them hardly at all and they swallow them. They're the right shape, they're sort of cylindrical. And then they slip down into the back of the pharynx or into the esophagus, the food pipe going to the rumen, and you get these chokes. And if they're the right size, some of these can be very, very difficult to uh, manage. But in the general run of the mill, chokes are just vanishingly rare. You really just never see them. Many of the very large outfits that have been grazing up to three, three and a half thousand trade steers a year, for some years have not had a single choke for many years. So it's, it's not common at all. And as a general rule of thumb, it's not an issue in any way, shape or form. Okay, great. Well, Jim has covered a huge amount of technical content on health of animals grazing beet in this podcast. There's, there is just a huge amount of information there. And this will hopefully give you all a better understanding of how to avoid common problems. And it always comes back to the management of transition and the agronomy of the growing crop. So the series all links in together and please do listen to the, the other podcasts as well. They are all 
available on the Farm and Fire Zuri service website, which is www.fast.scot. And there you'll find the podcast and you'll find the webinars there as well. There was three webinars and they were done specifically on sheep, beef and dairy systems. So thank you so much, Jim, for joining us throughout November for this series of podcasts and webinars. I think that you guys over in New Zealand have had so much experience of fodder beet setting up the grazing systems and there's so much that we can learn from you guys' experiences. So thank you so much for being open and sharing all your experiences with us. Well, thank you, Kirsten, and uh, thanks to the Scottish audience. It's been an absolute pleasure, this uh, series of webinars and podcasts. I'm really excited about what I see in Scotland and uh, the uh, increase in beef grazing systems there. I think it's a marvellous opportunity. I'm happy to do so. I look forward to being back in Scotland at the first possible opportunity. So thank you again. Great. Thank you.